Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week on the show, we hear from Mark Ward on the history of and some of the questions around Bible translations. That the boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. And that is sort of the battle cry of Bible translation into the vernacular. The idea that the people I passed driving tractors should have the Bible in a language that they can understand. It doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is going to be easy, it just means that the English itself on that translation level is going to be accessible to them. Hey, I'm Isaac and welcome to In Doubt again. And just so everyone knows, we have made it into December. So to all our college and university listeners, I mean, this is crunch time. Um, and to everyone, we are officially in the Christmas season, so that's exciting. Uh, we have some great stuff in store for you this month. Uh, if you're aware of this week's episode number, we are on episode 99, which is just crazy, uh, which means next week we hit 100, which is really exciting for us. Uh, you'll want to make sure you tune in next week because we have actually a very special episode with uh, some friends and different things like that. But today, I'm really excited to be chatting with a, a really smart person, uh, but also a friend. His name is Mark Ward. He's been on the show before, and he's going to be talking to us about the development of and some of the questions surrounding Bible translations. So let's jump into this conversation. Well, with me today is Mark Ward. Mark received his PhD from Bob Jones University in 2012, and he now serves the church as a Logos Pro. So thanks for being in studio again, Mark. It's really great to be here, Isaac. Thank you. Yeah, last year, actually, it was around this time, uh, we had Mark with us to talk about a book that he had co-written uh, with a fellow named Tom Breeden, and it was titled, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in Light of Scripture. Um, and they were just great episodes, uh, and it seems kind of funny that, you know, here you are, maybe an expert as Bible translations and marijuana, but <laughs> you just, you know, you think about these things, right? Some people use Bible translations and use the paper to roll up the marijuana. Oh, I see That's how this works. That's the connection. <laughs> Okay, that's good. Um, anyways, uh, they were episodes 43 and 44, if you're interested. Very interesting and good episodes, so I'd encourage you to listen to that. Uh, but anyways, Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I am rejoicing in God's goodness to me. That's so good. If you don't know, if you never knew, actually, we are just above the line in Canada in Vancouver, and Mark is just below the line in uh, a little place called Bellingham, which is like, I don't know, an hour or so out of, or two hours out of Seattle, probably. People would hear, people no, know Seattle. About an hour and a half. About an hour and a half. There you go. Uh, and he works at Logos Bible Software, Faith Life. So you're called a Logos Pro. So what is what exactly is that? Well, the people who teach us the Bible in churches need to use tools to do their study, and one of the premier tools available is Logos Bible Software, and it is okay to say Logos or Logos or Logos or Logos. Um, we don't specify for our what customers. What do you choose? I typically say Logos okay. around people who've studied Greek ah. and Logos around people who haven't. I, I, see. I try to observe that distinction. Okay. But I use the software personally and have for years, and they hired me on to write articles about Bible study 
that show off how Logos Bible software can be useful for people. And it's just absolutely fun. For two years so far, I've just been able to write about whatever interests me about the Bible. And Logos is always related to it because it's the tool that I use personally. Right, exactly. So I'm supposed to be a pro in the use of the software. The truth is there's a lot of things it can do, and I'm not equally good at them all. So I can't admit to a, a claim to be a super great pro like a couple people at the company. But I do try to know enough that the average user can get some help from me. That's cool. That's really good. And uh, I think it was a couple months ago, I was talking to uh, Tim Challies on the show about his book, Godly Productivity, or no, it was called Do More Better. It was about yeah. godly productivity. And uh, he talked about the importance of, of tools when it comes to our daily lives. And he was just saying, like, consider your pastor, you'd want to give him the best tools that he has when he's giving you the word. Uh, just like a doctor, you want the doctor to have the, you know, the, the best tools when he's doing brain surgery on you as well. Right. So uh, just to hear you say the Logos is a great tool, it's true. Like, and not, not even just for pastors, anyone who's just interested and exactly. wants to dive into Bible study, right? Right. There are so many Bible search and analysis tools within Logos that I use every single day, and I don't know even how I could do Bible study in, in any depth without it. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I think my pastor said that it saves him about three hours of like just other stuff of flipping pages, down, yeah, flipping right. pages and all that kind of stuff. So there you go. Um, and also, Mark, just before we jump into our actual conversation here, um, for those who don't know you, you know, who are you? A little bit. We know what you do now, but who, who's Mark Ward in a kind of a more personal sense? Well, I. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God, and that's why I'm rejoicing. The Lord has been good to me to save me from my sins, give me a good Christian wife and three healthy children, and a job where I get to write about Bible study. I have been pinching myself the last two years working <laughs> for Logos, and I just preached at my church uh, for seven weeks um, to give my pastor a sabbatical, and uh, I preached on Romans eight twenty eight, and I told my congregation, you know, all things work together for good. And in my life, God simply hasn't chosen to give me difficult trials, uh, and I don't know why, and he's welcome to do so. I trust him, but um, I, every stage of my life, the Lord has moved me along very clearly, given me opportunities for which I'm very thankful. And one of them is to be here talking to you about some of the work that I've done, and I, I have definitely felt that any opportunities I've had for education— and for ministry experience, I need to pour back into the church. So um, PhD, uh, all that means for me is I have hopefully some extra tools to give back to the Christian church. That's what I'm motivated by. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks, Mark, for sharing that. That's good. Um, all right. Well, um, you said to me in our emails that uh, asking you to talk about Bible translations is like asking a Canadian to talk about hockey. Uh -huh. um, so <laughs> I'm excited to hear you talk about Bible translations then. Um, so yeah, th this is what this is all about. Bible translations, a very general kind of scraping of it because we only have, you know, so long to talk about it. But I'm wondering if you could just spend some time explaining um, just sort of the story behind Bible translations, why we have so many today, um, maybe even how are they written. There's just a lot of questions there. So I just kind of want to let you sort of take that on the way that you think. Sure. Actually, on my way up here, I was listening to an audio book. Um, Dearman McCulloch is a, a church historian, and he wrote a big book on the Reformation, and I felt like 2017 was a good year for me to uh, study the Reformation. So um, he was saying that um, the Bible created the Reformation, um, 
a lot of us kind of think of it the other way around in a way that is that the Reformation gave us a bunch of Bibles, and and really both are true. Right. In the history of Bible translation, there were about eight translations of the Bible made in the early centuries of the church, mostly into languages that are obscure to us. Um, but one of them was not, and that is Latin. And the Latin Vulgate, translated by Jerome uh, very early on, uh, that ended up being the absolute standard Bible translation for centuries. When was that one uh, written? You know, I was afraid you were going to ask me that because I <laughs> always get it mixed up between um, the 3rd and 4th centuries. Well, that's good enough. It's that early on. But I am able to ask the internet, and sure enough, 382. Okay. Okay. It was when uh, the Vulgate was uh, commissioned. And it... It faced, like any new translation, um, a uh, boy, an, a backlash. People are never happy. Nope. <laughs> with, because any change you make whatsoever is seen as a threat. And now, um, I totally understand that because this is these are God's words, and the whole idea for a non-specialist who you know maybe just reads the one language of the translation, the, the idea that God's words could be changed, it's kind of alarming. Um, but we'll talk more about that, sure, I assume. Yeah. But the fact is that language changes. Latin changed. Certainly English has changed over the centuries. English didn't exist in anything like its current form back in the days of the Vulgate. So as the centuries progressed and as various nations in Europe uh, established themselves and became self-conscious of their status as nations, um, that coincided with the retrieval both of classical learning in the Renaissance and of Bible doctrine in the Reformation. And all of a sudden, after the Reformation, there really was an explosion of vernacular Bibles. There was a smattering of Bible translation before that. And it isn't actually true to say that the Roman Catholic Church forbid it all. They did in England. They burned, um, they actually, uh, they, they took Will, uh, John Wycliffe and exhumed his body and burned his bones because he had translated the Bible. And they, uh, a century later, burned William Tyndall. Uh, and ironically enough, I was William Tyndall in a play in high school, <laughs> and I said those famous words, you know, uh, ere many years I will cause the, that the boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the battle cry of Bible translation into the vernacular, the, the idea that the people I passed driving tractors up here in Abbotsford should have the Bible in a language that they can understand. It doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is going to be easy. It just means that the English itself on that translation level is going to be accessible to them. Um, nowadays, we have, uh, because of printing, because of computer technology, because of the development of societies, we have the opportunity to have many, many different Bible translations. The prominent ones are pretty much all done by committee. You asked, how are they produced? Um, a, a group of scholars will come together under the sponsorship of some publisher or organization, and they will usually take an existing Bible and revise it because translating the entire Bible is a great deal of work. Yeah. And translators need sandwiches and places to stay in hotels, and that's expensive. So the ESV, for example, is a revision of the RSV, which is a revision of the 
RV, which is a revision of the King James, which itself is a revision of Tyndall's New Testament and much of his translation. And all English translations pretty much go back to Tyndall. Um, but, but the major uh, tr- translations today, like the New International Version, the New American Standard Bible, the, uh, the ESV, the New Living Translation, um, these are produced by committee. Uh, and that tends to um, – uh, the Christian Standard Bible is another good one. That tends to iron out the idiosyncrasies um, because rather than multiple cooks spoiling the broth, I right. think it's many cooks checking to make sure the broth is accurate. And so we really have what I always call an embarrassment of riches in our Bible translations today in English. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about it. Um, would you say that because of the advancement of technology and maybe even archaeology and finding out new things about old cultures, would translations today be better than, let's say, translations 100 years ago or something like that? The simple answer is yes, but as with any any talk about translation, it is excessively complicated. Um, Going from one language to another is this really amazing thing. I just read a whole book about translation that wasn't even about Bible translation. It was about, <laughs> for example, spent a lot of time talking about the UN translators who will translate live. And the complexities are enormous. Um, about uh, a little over 100 years ago, there were some archaeologists who were digging around in the sands of Egypt. And they discovered a treasure trove of trash. And the reason it's a treasure trove is that among these many papers was a lot of Greek written on papyrus sheets by regular people writing contracts, uh, writing letters back home. And what scholars were able to discern a little over 100 years ago was that, hey, this is the very same Greek of the New Testament. Um, It used to be thought that the Greek New Testament was sort of a special Christian Holy Spirit language invested with special meaning. Um, but now we've been able to see this is just the way people talked in what was in the lingua franca of the time. So there are minor adjustments that can be made for that reason. And yes, translations are better now. But I would actually say not very much better. I think the King James, uh, which uh, we'll talk more about, is an excellent translation, or I would say was an excellent translation. It's just that English has changed in 400 years. So we need fresh translations, not so much because of new scholarship, but because English itself changes. Right. That's really good. And something else to think about too, and I just thought about this now, but I'm, I'm thinking sometimes uh, people in the West can sort of just think that sometimes they're the center of the world, uh, sadly. And, uh, you know, for me, when I think about Bible translations, I'm just considering the ones that were probably formed by committees, let's say, in, in America. Uh, and you could probably correct me on that if I'm wrong, but things like NIV, ESV, these kind of big translations. Um, but the question is, like, there are obviously multiple, multiple translations when you consider the amount of languages there are in the entire world. So, when you think of the Bibles in India and whatever in Africa, are these translations from the translations in uh, like America, like the NIV and everything, or are they their own sort of uh, different translations? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And that's a great question. Actually, in the history of Bible translation, the very first English translation by Wycliffe back in uh, the 1380s was made from the Latin Vulgate. 
And that's kind of like making a photocopy of a photocopy. You are going to lose something. Right. And so since the Reformation, actually, I've been reading about this in the Reformation, Protestants and Catholics were going back and forth about this because the Catholics had tended to view the Vulgate as the absolute standard. And um, it, it's a very human thing to do, to th- take the thing in your hands, the Bible in your hands, and assume this is absolutely perfect right. because we accord perfection to God's words. Yes. But at the ultimate level, we do have to make a distinction between translation and the originals in Greek and Hebrew and a little bit in Aramaic. And the reformers, and now Catholics agree with this, said that we need to make translations from the Greek and Hebrew originals. And that is the standard around the world today. Um there are some fringe translations made uh, through other means, but the the great majority of Bible translations around the world are taken from Greek and Hebrew. Okay, that's awesome. Um, now, this is sort of, you just said, you know, we like to take what's in our hands and hopefully it's it's like the best or we sort of idolize that. But, th- th- you know, help us break that maybe uh, understanding a little bit. So, obviously, some translations will get things wrong or maybe a little bit off. So, I was wondering if you could just give us a few examples of maybe translations that perhaps don't say something super truthfully according to that, say, the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic. So, um, you know, or at least as good as it could have. Right. Um, I want to sort of preface my comments on this excellent question by pointing out that if you um, are suspicious of a Bible translation, you're not being suspicious of words on a page. You're not being suspicious so much of a publisher or a printer. You're being suspicious of people who sat down in front of a computer and did did the work. And, And almost all of the translations that you will ever run into in your entire life of the Bible were done by fellow Christians who go to a church very much like yours. And so, I just want to tamp down the suspicion a little bit. Okay. And imagine that this is your Sunday school teacher because he is or she is. Men and women involved in these things, they are Bible teachers in the church. And maybe if they do err, and surely all people are both fallen and finite, and we do err, and among the countless decisions that have to be made, surely someone's going to miss the most elegant way to translate or maybe the most precise. That's good. But as for out-and-out errors, I would say they're very rare. Hmm. Um, The Jehovah's Witnesses have their New World translation at John 1.1 where it's famous, infamous. They've altered it. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they translate it in a way to deny Jesus' deity. But even within the New World Translation, later in John 1, in just a few verses, they can't help but affirm Jesus' deity. Mm. Um, It's kind of hard to mess up a Bible translation if you're at all serious. And everybody, every Bible that's available in a bookstore is serious. Right. As for examples of problems, um, John 1, 1 of the New World Translation is the classic example. But Take the New International Version, which I think is very useful and every Christian should own, who speaks English. Um, th- uh, the 1984 edition, which is was the standard you right. know, in all yep. my growing up years, um, I don't have the passages in front of me, but they tended to translate what is more literally translated flesh, like uh, you know that, that evil, wicked part of you that Paul talks about. They translated it sinful nature. And that, and what they were trying to do, and this is, remember, your Sunday school teacher. Right, right. right. 
he's trying to relate the truth of Paul to people who aren't familiar with it. But what ended up happening was over time, people started to recognize, you know, that raises implications about, you know, does, do people have two natures? You know, once you become a Christian, you have a sinful nature and, a, you know, a, a saved nature. Saved, yeah. That's very awkward theologically. So they ended up going back to flesh. And uh, and you can read, they're, you know, they're not hiding anything. You can go read their descriptions and arguments for why they've done what they've done. Um, and Douglas Moo, who's now in charge of it, happens to be in charge of the NIV uh, Committee for Bible Translation, which is in charge solely of the text. Um, he's the top commentator on the Book of Romans, and everybody in biblical studies would know him for that. Um, and he was just very open and honest about their process, saying, you know, here were our motivations, and here's why we think we made a mistake, and we're going to change it. But that's very different from saying, there's a bunch of errors in there, and you got to watch out. Right, right. I'm just going to say, th- there really aren't. Anytime that you go online and see somebody complaining about the terrible thing that this translation did, I, I guarantee if you could sit down with your Sunday school teacher, remember, who did this translation, right, right. at least his explanation would be plausible. Yes, yes. Um, you're not going to come away thinking that was, you know, totally off base. Yeah. He or she had a good reason yes. for what they did. And I think it's important too. That's really, I'm really glad you said that, Mark, because it, it's important to know that it wasn't one single person sitting down right. and sort of putting, maybe they have this theological bias that or a framework that they're sort of, you know, it's a bias on the text. Um, and it, it's complicated. I even think of... Um, uh, recently, I just I was a little bit late in the game, but I I, I saw that in uh, the ESV, the whole uh, Genesis three right. fifteen. I think it was fifteen or sixteen about the whole word 16. contrary or yeah. four and right. different things like that. But you got to understand, like you just said, there there's a committee here. They're not you know consciously thinking in their mind. Ooh, I want to really mess people up. Like that's that's eons away from what they're thinking. They're trying to be faithful to the text. Right. Yeah. And. All of these committees try to be representative within a fairly large segment of the Christian church. Um, it depends on the translation, but you look at the NIV, for example, and you're you're not just looking at a bunch of Baptists sitting in a room. You've got your Anglicans and your Methodists um, and your Lutherans. We're talking about evangelical people who believe yes, the gospel, yes. believe in the authority and inerrancy of the Bible. That's what the NIV is predicated on. Um, but they purposefully reach beyond one or two denominations in order to have somebody in the room who says, ah, I think you shaded that just a That's little good. bit in the Lutheran direction or just a little bit in the Baptist direction, and we want that. Do we really want the Bible to be the property of only our denomination? Yeah, I don't think so. I think we all intuitively recognize that the Bible is the property of, that is, stands over all of God's people. And um, I, committee translations... I think have been a uh, a blessing to the English speaking Christian Church ever since at least the King James, which itself was a committee translation. Interesting. Yeah, that's good. Lastly, the last thing I want to ask you, Mark, is how can we sort of reconcile the fact? Uh, and this is kind of a big question here, and we only have a few minutes to go into it. But anyways, uh, reconcile the fact that the Bible is God's inerrant, uh, you know, kind of infallible word. That's what we're told in church. That's what we learn about in Bible college. All these different things. Yet. In our hands, we're actually reading a translation. How can we sort of reconcile those two things? How can we say that what we're holding when I'm holding the NIV or the ESV or whatever is is God's inspired word? That is a fantastic question, Isaac, a very important one. And we need to make some careful distinctions here. Going back into the earliest days of the church, 
um, Christians have read God's words in translation. Actually, before the time of Jesus, Jewish believers were reading God's words in translation. It's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that is what Jesus and Paul themselves, the other apostles, quoted. When they quoted the Old Testament, they most frequently quoted this translation. And it's not a perfect translation. We can look at the Hebrew and the Greek and see places where the Septuagint erred. Interesting. But it's so important for believers in the one true God to have his words in their heart language because Jesus said, go into you know, all the nations and disciple them all, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And that cannot be done unless it's, uh, the Bible is translated. Yes. The, fact, the mere fact that the Bible is in Hebrew and in Greek, Hebrew Old Testament, Greek New Testament, means that it has to be translated because how many people in the world understand both of those languages? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, we have to, as opposed to Islam, which has tended to view only the Arabic version of the Quran as truly God's words, right. Christians have always held up a Bible in the pulpit and said, this is God's word, whether it's in English or Urdu or my friends, the Bible translators are working into Sarakabadem somewhere in Africa, <laughs> I think in Chad. Um, they've, we've always said that and we need to keep saying that because insofar as the Bible is accurately translated, these are God's words. We've always viewed them that way. But reality is that there is a difference between the ultimate standard, the Greek and Hebrew originals, and this proximate standard, the translations. And if you feel stuck because, well, I don't read Greek and Hebrew, so how can I really, really know the ultimate standard? Listen to the advice of Augustine from way back in the time of Jerome. Listen to the advice of Miles Coverdale, who picked up William Tyndall's translation after he died and finished it and produced the first official English translation of the Bible in modern era. Um, or actually ever, listen to my advice. And we all say the same thing, and that is use multiple good translations. And even if one of them is a shade not quite as helpful, the other ones are going to pick up the slack. And by studying multiple ones, using that embarrassment of riches, you'll be able to get all the meaning that the Holy Spirit intended for you. That's so good. And, and I, think it's, I think it's okay to say this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when you have, let's say, some of the more traditional translations in, in your house today or online or whatever, there's no errors in them that would be a huge um, uh, theological distortion of the gospel. They're probably small little things. Right. If you if you bought this translation anywhere other, I mean, if you bought it in a bookstore, it's going to be one of the major ones. So no, I can't say every translation every listener sure. has. Sure. No, is, of course. Um, but I'm going to say 99.9% likely that the translation you have in your hand is great and you can trust it. Without saying it's perfect, you can trust it. That's so good. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for your time today. Um, Mark has just written actually a brand new book that's not quite out yet, but it's called Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Uh, it's going to be out in the new year, but I'm going to be uh, putting a pre-order, on the, a pre-order link on the episode page as well. Um, but you'll definitely have to check that out because he gets into translations and also about the King James version of the Bible as well, which we're going to have Mark back in the studio uh, pretty soon to talk to us specifically about that translation and some of the just the issues and things that go on with that specific translation from about 500 years ago now or less than that. Anyways, thanks so much for being here with today, Mark. Thanks for having me, Isaac. Appreciate it. That was Mark Ward. And again, all the relative links from this conversation, like his new book on pre-order, will be on the episode page. 
Now, as you may or may not know, the end of the year is a very important time for charities and nonprofits, of which we are at Indout. Um, everything Indout does is given out for free, but obviously it costs us money to produce it all. Uh, we're hoping to raise seventy-five thousand by the end of the year, which may sound like a lot, but think of it this way: if just you know a thousand people gave seventy-five dollars, we'd be done. But whether or not you can give one dollar or a hundred or whatever, uh, it all matters to us. So if you'd like to support us financially, just click the donate button at indout.ca if you live in Canada, or indout.com if you live in the states. Connect with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram this week. We'd love that. If you have a maybe a topic or an issue that you'd like us to talk about, or maybe a special guest you'd want to have on the show, let us know. We'd love that. Well, I'm Isaac, and next week we hit 100 episodes, and we'll be having an old-fashioned guest cast. We'll see you then. Indoubt Ministries exists to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the U.S. Thank you.